Grab your Bibles and open up to the book of James. Open up to the book of James as we continue in our series called Faith in the Fire. We're answering the question that has been asked throughout the ages. The question is this, why do the righteous suffer? Why does God allow pain and suffering into the lives of his children? James is a pastor. He's also an apostle in the sense that he was sent out to grow and build the church. In addition, he was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He knew Jesus like nobody else did. He grew up in the same house with him. And now James is writing this book, and God is speaking through him to you and to me. He covers six major areas of testing that you and I will face in life. Sickness, time when we have to wait, love when we are in, uh, in need of, of, of help from other people. Words, the words that we say and the words that others say and the pain that that can cause. Conflict with others and then money. This is what God uses to test our faith. These are usually the sources of the pain that we will face. Why do the righteous suffer? I love a quote that I heard by Ravi Zacharias, though it is not original to him, as he describes God's relationship to someone he wants to grow. It says this, When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, How he bends but never breaks when his good God undertakes. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. It says God ruthlessly perfects. He hammers and hurts and converts and offers trials shaped of clay. That's true. When God wants to grow our faith, he uses pain and suffering. God's steady hand is controlling the intensity of the trial. But we ask ourselves often, why? Why? Today we'll learn how we can remain steadfast under trial. We'll learn just how important it is for us to stand our ground. When the fire starts, how can we stay our course? Let's pray and then we'll learn together. Father, you bring great days, days filled with comfort and ease and affluence, days filled with health and wellness, and you bring hard days, dark days when the storm doesn't stop. Sometimes those days stretch out into weeks and months and years. Help us to know your heart. Help us to know your character. Help us to know your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Check out James chapter 1. We'll be in verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. Last week we learned about how we should not put our hope in riches. We should not put our hope in money because, because the, the goodness of this world is passing away. In verse 12, it goes on to say this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jot this down. Number one, remain steadfast and you will be blessed. All of the blessings that God has planned for you through this trial are coming, but you have to stay under it. 
The Greek word used here is a compound word. It literally means stay under. You have to stay under the pressure in order for the blessings to arrive. Listen, you can't quit. You can't bail. You can't run off to a sinful solution. Then you won't learn the lesson. Then you won't receive the blessing. You can't quit. You have to stay under it. Well, how much longer is it going to be? I don't know. How much harder is it going to get? I don't know. I was ready to quit yesterday. You have to stay under it. Remain steadfast and you will be blessed. Now notice it says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In order to obey this verse of the Bible, you need a trial. So if you don't have a trial, raise your hand up right now and the ushers will bring you one. <laughs> Put your hand up. If, you don't have, if there's not a difficult person in your life, uh, we will share in fact, if, if someone has their hand up, you might want to offload one of your trials onto them right now. You need a trial to obey this verse. Some verses in the Bible you can only live out when there's pain. A person who's got everything they need and want right now, who's floating down the lazy river of life, don't talk to me about how the sun's a little too hot for your taste. Oh, it's so bright. You need some sunglasses in your life right now? Wow. This is written for people who are suffering. It also says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed. Wow, when the pain starts, what do we tell ourselves? What did I do that God is now so mad at me? I must be punished. He, he saw me and I must have done something and now I'm cursed. We don't feel blessed when the trial starts. We feel cursed. I must have done something wrong. Why am I being punished? The Bible says that you're blessed. The person who goes through hard times, sometimes when you see someone suffering, you wonder, well, I wonder what they did to deserve that. Only God knows. And we think those who are suffering are under a punishment of some sort. Don't automatically assume that a trial means God is angry with you. No. Now, I know that sometimes when we suffer, it's because we've done something wrong. Those are called consequences, all right? Now, there's a difference between a trial and a consequence, okay? If you get a ticket for going 120 in a school zone, don't talk to me about your trial. How did this happen? What curse has been put upon? You broke the law, all right? Now, God will help you through your consequences, but don't start wondering what cosmic curse has been put on you. Who's holding the voodoo doll that drove that car? It's your fault. God will help you, but call it a consequence, not a trial. Trial is when it's not your fault. A trial is when you're under the pressure of life. You wonder if God's angry, but there's no real reason to think that. It says here, when you're under trial, remain steadfast. Remain under the crushing weight of the pain. Just stand there and the good is coming. Just hold your ground and the blessing is on its way. Don't quit. Don't bail. Don't balk. You just can't see it yet. Remain steadfast and you will be blessed. It goes on to say this. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Jot this down. The crown comes long after the crisis. We want the crown by sundown. Terrible day, Lord, I didn't curse you. Where's my crown? 
Oh, what an awful day, but I made it. Give me my prize. We want it over now. But the crown comes long after the crisis. We have to wait. And the crown only comes if we stay underneath the trial. The crown only comes if we remain under. It says here, for those who have stood the test. That can also be translated, those who have been approved. Meaning you have been proved faithful by the trial. The trial didn't shipwreck your faith. Fortified it. You're on course. You made it to the finish line. That's when the blessing comes. We like crowns still. Here's a picture of the Miss America contest. She gets a crown. She's so happy. It's a few years ago. Look at how happy she is. It's because she's getting a crown. There's another famous crown in the United States. This is the Burger King crown. <laughs> Raise your hand if you wore that crown as a child. You wore the Burger King crown? Felt good to be royalty for a day, right? Then came the indigestion and it didn't feel so good anymore. We like crowns. The image here is more of a, a laurel wreath, like one of those flowery crowns that you would see Caesar wearing. They would give them to like athletes who won the race in the Olympics back then. So here you are, crossing the finish line, and God himself has a crown waiting for you. Not yet, soon to come. This looks to the future of our faith, where it says, if you stand the test, you'll receive the crown of life. So the crown here, the word crown is just an image for life, eternal life. There God is at the finish line when you have made it through all of the hardship of this life. When you go on to the next life and God is right there with life waiting for you. Wow. Why would I put up with this for another day? Why would I stay with that person another moment? You're struggling to believe it's worth it. But it is when you see God at the finish line with the crown. God doesn't just have a crown waiting for you at the end, though. He will, he will repeatedly bring you to the place where you have to endure and persevere. Then when you close out that trial, there will be a blessing waiting for you at the end. He wants to adorn your life with blessings for remaining faithful. You will have one mountaintop after another if you keep walking forward with Christ. And God will fill your life with trophies. But the crown comes long after the crisis. You must prove faithful. It goes on to say this. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jot this down. Remain steadfast and you'll be blessed. Display your faithful love for God. What does it look like to remain steadfast? You are persevering in your love for God. Here it describes you as one who you love him. But God loves you. It says God has promised some things to those who love him. So there's a loving relationship established here. He has promised to you, you are loving him. The promise of life waiting at the end, the promise of the crown waiting at the end of the pain, is only for those who love God. And God has made promises to those people so that He loves them. The verb tense here, when it says for those who love God, uh, means the love you have for Him is a prolonged way of life. It, it's, it's a love that isn't ending. It, it marks your, your life. Your love for God is established and ongoing. It doesn't stop. It's not like you love Him to get out of the trial. 
You've already loved him before. This is why you were made. You were made to love God, to delight in his presence, to know who he is. That's why you're here. And trials will prove whether or not you love God. Your love for him will come out. It will grow stronger. It will intensify when the pain comes. But if you don't love God, then when the pain comes, the things you really want out of this life will become your primary focus. Trials reveal what you love, what you're afraid of losing, what you can't live without. The fire will reveal who you love, who you won't give up, who you can't stand to lose. And once life gets hard, if you love God, that love will become the most important reality through the pain. Display your faithful love for God. This is your chance. This is your chance. When things go dark, this is your chance to talk about your love for God, to sing about your love for God, to grow in your love for God. And it's also God's chance to prove his love for you because he's made promises to you. That's what loving people do. So when I was in college, I fell in love with a girl named Lauren. She was a cute waitress from the country house restaurant down the street. We talked on the phone and sparks flew and then we got together and had a date and then she went away to college in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we had this long distance relationship for a while and we didn't have cell phones back then. We had beepers. You couldn't text on a beeper. We figured out how to write like one word at a time using numbers and you had to flip the beeper upside down. How many of you knew how to do that? Check it out. Here's one word we could send back and forth to each other on a beeper. Hello. Those are numbers. 07734, flip it upside down and it's like, hello. It's called a beeper. Then, then the magic of AOL camp, America Online. And then we could, we could go onto our computer and we could put in a CD and then log into the internet. And it took about 10 minutes to get online back then. And there were all these space noises that scared the pets in the house. But once you finally got online, then you can go to AOL and it said, you've got mail. And there we would send email back and forth. We didn't have to go to the mailbox because the mail came from space. It was awesome. And we could catch up on our day and then I could send her, you know, a, an email back and, and uh, then I would go up and visit her from time to time. And here we're building this love and it's hard to build a relationship when you're long distance. After nine months of dating, I knew she was the one. So I bought a ring, got down on one knee, proposed to her. She said, yes. Then the following summer, we got married. It was in the year 2000. We stood up in front of a room full of people and, and God, and we made promises to each other, till death do us part. I said it, and I meant it. That's where love leads you. True love leads you to make a sacrifice, to make a promise, and you keep that promise in the good and in the bad, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. That's love. And this is the way God loves you. It says here, God has promised things to those who love him. His love isn't this pampering, fickle, I'll love you if I feel like it. How are you doing today? His love is eternal, and he's made promises to those who love him. This is what it means to know God. But you have to understand, 
that the only way for you to know God's love is through His Son, Jesus Christ. It says in John 16, 27, for the Father, Jesus said this, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me. Because you have loved me. How can I know God's love? How can I know this pain is going to lead to a promise? How can I know God is there with me every step of the way? Only if you know Jesus, His Son, as Savior. If you have Jesus in your life and you love Him because He saved you, you love God. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God's love. All of God's affections for you are bound up in His Son. He so loved the world that He gave His Son. And if Jesus is not an everyday present reality to you, God's love is not in your life. And all of the suffering you've gone through in your past, everything you're walking through in the present, Every hard thing that is going to come into your life is God's way of saying to you the same thing. You need my son. You need my son. You need my son. And if you just harden your heart and try and walk through it without him, I'm going to get through this, assuming God is with you, the pain will never go away. Not in this world and certainly not in hell forever. You need God's son or the suffering is just getting started. You have to admit to God that most of the problems in your life are your fault. Most of the suffering in this life is your sin that has come back upon you. You have to see that it's the sin of others that has hurt you and understand that that's where godlessness will take you. Then, when in humility you're on your face before the God who sent His only Son to love you, then, then the promises of God will be yours. You need Christ to know God's love. Hey, remain steadfast and you'll be blessed. Know that the crown comes long after the crisis and display your faithful love for God through His Son. The second point is this. When trials come and life gets hard, remain steadfast. And number two, don't blame God. Go ahead and jot that down. Don't blame God. It says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Let no one say when he is tempted. The word for tempted in trial is actually the same word. It's just the the pressure on our life is God's way of growing our faith, but at the same time, the enemy comes in and tries to drag us off course. All of that pressure can be a trial, but it can very easily turn into a temptation when we're drawn away from God. God will allow us to be tried and tested. God will never tempt us to evil. But we blame Him for our evil inclinations. We don't take uh, responsibility for when we sin. How could I not leave my wife the way she talks to me? How could I not blow up at my boss after what he did to change my salary? How could I not go tens of thousands of dollars into debt? You saw the bills. I couldn't help it. I had to. We blame God. We blame God for being passive. Where was he when this happened to me? We blame God for being active. How could he do this? How could he he do this to me? We blame him for being active and passive. You have to understand, though, the Bible says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
Why? God cannot be tempted with evil. He can't. No evil will ever turn God's will to darkness. And he himself tempts no one. God is not the blameworthy cause of your pull into sin. When the trial comes and life gets hard and there's a sinful solution, that is not God's way for you. Oftentimes I'll talk to people who are in a struggling marriage and it gets dark and it gets scary and they don't know if they're going to make it and then they meet someone. And I always say the same thing. No one who comes into your life right now is from God. No one. But They don't feel that way. They feel like this is the greener grass. This is the person they've been waiting for and it's a lie. Temptation. God will not tempt you. It goes on to say this in verse In verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God is now contrasted with you. Jot this down. Believe God is good and he only plans what is good. We're learning about the nature of God and how he relates to the evil in our lives and in our hearts. Who is God and what is he doing in my life, especially when it's hard? The fire will will reveal what you believe about God. The fire will cause you to question whether or not God can be trusted. And the Bible is loud and clear. God cannot be tempted with evil. He tempts no one. The temptation comes from somewhere else. How does God relate to evil? Because obviously he has all power, yet he still allows evil to spill into my life. God can't be tempted with evil, but he allows my heart to get so seduced that I practically feel like I can't stop myself from sinning. What is God's relationship to evil? God has an adversarial relationship to evil. Satan is not the same as God. They're not on the same team. Satan is God's opposite. Well, then why doesn't he just get rid of all evil? Um, Careful what you ask for. Because you have brought some evil into this world, some sin with you. So if you want God to get rid of all of it, are you exempting yourself? Sure he could have. Sure he could have. In Noah's day, he could have said, it's over. Humanity dies with you. No more wickedness will ever enter this life. There goes you. So we have to be careful. When we say, how can God allow evil? We exempt ourselves. That's a double standard. The fact that God does allow evil allows you. If you look back to creation, how did things go wrong? God tried to warn Adam and Eve, do not eat from that tree. God is not the blameworthy cause of sin entering this life. They went against his warning. They were tempted and they gave in. It was us. We opened the floodgates that led to the spiritual oil spill that we're all now swimming in. God is cleaning it up. How dare we accuse him of being the problem? We did this. He didn't do this. We killed his son. We butchered his son. We're going to point our finger at him and say, you're the problem? Clear all of that out of your heart. God is good, and he only plans what is good. He tried to warn us. Now he's cleaning up our mess. Don't blame God for your suffering. He's not the poison, he's the antidote. Another way to think of it is, 
your life, your soul is like a computer for a long time. It's had malware on it. It's had adware. It's had spyware. It's all these programs you have installed through your evil desires. You have loved sin, and now you can't stop the sinful thoughts from coming. But when you were born, the hard drive was corrupt. It didn't work right from the beginning. Hardware, software, both problems in your soul. God comes in and starts installing virtues. He comes in and starts cleaning things up. And when those sinful desires pop up because of pressure, he didn't put them there. He opened the file so you can see, I've got a problem with anger. I was doing just fine until my middle child started talking bad to me. Where did all this anger come from? It was already there. That file was double-clicked. <laughs> Believe God is good. He only plans what is good. God is deleting corrupt files, installing new virtues, saving your system from a total failure. He's good. Don't blame God. Jot this down. Trials expose the sin that's already in my heart. You're learning through your trial the truth about your own nature. There's a whole lot of sinful desire still in there. Well, I thought Jesus took away all my sin. Yeah, he took away the punishment for all of your sin. He took away the power of sin, but it's still in there. God's going to be cleaning things up until the day you die. He's not done yet. It says here in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed. The trial creates pressure. That pressure creates desires for good things in your life. I'm lonely, I need companionship. I'm uncertain, I need security. I'm, I'm poor and I need provision. Uh, yeah, all good things, all good things. But then comes the bait. But it's inside of you. It says here that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You want something that you need. Life gets hard, but then comes the sinful solution and you're drawn to that. Something in you still finds sin appetizing. You're still drawn to it, and that's temptation. There's a fishing imagery used here. And I brought a, a, a little tackle box here with some lures. What's going on in your heart when life gets hard is uh, somewhere, somehow, life you know, dangles one of these in front of you, and you're like, ooh, that looks scrumptious. Maybe it's pleasure, someone you can be with. Maybe it's money, some way that you can cut corners. Maybe it's who knows, but, but life's not going the way you want it. And then suddenly it's like, ooh, la, la. I could go for one of those. Or maybe, maybe one of these swims right in front of your heart. And you're like, yes, that's what will fix my problem. If I just take a bite of that, then, then I'm going to be more secure. This, this is what's going on. There's a lot of them in here. There's many different ways that the enemy can get you to fall. Who knows? Uh, but but when, when life is hard, the, they all have hooks. This is what's going to be right in front of you the wrong way. You'll be lured. You'll be enticed. The hook will be baited with things that you need, but it will not lead you to good places. I love that word, lured and enticed. The idea here is that there is a desire in your heart to be with things you shouldn't be with. Enticed, lured can also mean your, your desire is for like this 
here it's, it's personified as a, as a woman who's trying to steal your heart from God. Lured and enticed by his own desire. There's competition for your love. And, and here comes this prostitute. And suddenly she's got your eye and your ear and you're drawn to her. But she's no good for you. Do you remember Bugs Bunny? Did you ever watch Bugs Bunny? Who watched Bugs Bunny when you were a kid? I watched it. Do you remember the cartoon where, where Bugs Bunny dressed up like a girl bunny? So check it out. Elmer Fudd wants to shoot him, right? Elmer Fudd wants nothing more than to get rid of that wabbit. And then Bugs Bunny gets all dressed up, and then Elmer Fudd, what does he do? He's like, wow, and he drops the gun, and Bugs can come right up. What a fool. He's disarmed. He's being misled. And this is you when you give your eyes to sin. This is a woman who has no good intentions. She is not going to lead you down God's path. In fact, look what it says happens here. It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Hey, baby, you look good. Let's get together, maybe once. Then what happens? Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, uh uh-oh, you got the prostitute pregnant. Now she's having a baby. Well, it wasn't supposed to be that serious. It was just this one time I was just fiddling around with sin. Yeah, now it's coming out. It says here, then then desire conceives and gives birth to sin. So you have a baby with your sinful desires, and that baby comes out. Here's a picture of a baby. You have a baby. It's so cute. Sin in its early stages is so fun, so cute. We're meant to be together. No one will know. It's just this little baby. Then the little baby starts growing up. Then she gets an attitude. Then she starts talking back. And, and the idea here is that sin is taking time to reach full development. It says in verse 15, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. Then sin is fully grown. So now sin is this sassy little, you can't control her anymore. She's fully grown. You thought it was just a cute little baby, but now bigger, bigger. Then she gets pregnant. What? And when she's fully grown, she has a baby. And the name of that baby is death. So you, having this seduction with desire, produces baby sin. Sin's all grown up, gives birth to your own death. What did you name your baby? Sin. Oh, that's a little unusual, but you just had a grandbaby. What did you name her? Death. Here's a picture of your grandbaby. Check it out. That's a grim reaper. How cute. Isn't this laughable? This is like comical. I think my sin will bring me pleasure, will secure me. No. It'll bring you death. The grandson of your evil desire is your own death. Don't trust sin. Sin can't deliver you. God is bad. My sin plan is good. No. God is good. Your sin plan is death. Stop blaming God. Don't let the trial lead you away from the God who loves you. He is good. So here's... Here's the warning. I give in to my sinful temptations. We have baby sin, then we have grandbaby death, and it doesn't end well for me. Well, what's the other option? Well, jot this down. God is in the process of purging your world of wickedness. Go ahead and fill that in. 
What's the alternative? <clears throat> Verse 16 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read that again. Don't be deceived. Some of you, the bag is halfway down over your eyes and you're about to be tricked into a sinful road, sinful out to your trial. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is such a beautiful portrayal of the goodness of our God. Who is God and why is my life so hard? It says every perfect gift is from God above. He sends down everything good in your life. I've heard atheists in anger when a tragedy happens say, Where's God? Where's God? Where's... He's given you every good thing in your life. I never hear an atheist say, You know what? Sometimes I wonder where God is, but then I'm very thankful that he has given me food and clothing and sun and the stuff. They don't thank him for things. They just accuse him of things. He is the giver of every good thing you've ever enjoyed. He's the source of all blessing. It says here that he is the father of lights. That's an amazing description of God. This looks back to creation. When in the beginning there was the heavens, there was the earth, and there was darkness. And for a moment the spirit paused over the face of the deep. And that's God's way of showing us, here's you without me. Then God said, let there be, and filled the whole universe with light. God is not the one who brings darkness. He's the one who shines the light into this world. He's the father of lights. He made the sun. He made the stars. He filled the universe with light. God is the father of lights. He created them. But now, he's different than them because it says he's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The sun sets. The stars twinkle, and sometimes we know today that they go out. They're gone. Not so with God. He's the father of all of them. And based on that physical reality that he created, that the sun that comes up and fills your world with light and heat, we learn something about his nature from that. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He's good. He's brighter in his goodness than the biggest, hottest burning star in the night sky. He's more glorious than the sun on its hottest day, more blinding in his goodness than if you had looked straight at the sun. Wow. This also reminds us that every day you're alive, God turns on the utilities for humanity. He provides for life. Well, how's that supposed to comfort me in a time of loss? Thanks a lot for turning the sun on, and that's all I should expect. No, based on the fact that he's able to turn the sun on every day, learn about his nature. He's amazing. He's perfect in goodness. Look up at the night sky and see that he's in control of trillions of moving stars. He lit them all on fire like candles, and he keeps them in their place. They're all moving, and he's holding them together. Wow. If he can do that to the stars... What can he do to my problem? Look at the nature of God. He is only good. He's not to blame. He brings light, not darkness. He's the only stable good thing in this whole universe. There's such great imagery here. It goes on to say in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth 
So now it calls God a father in verse 17. And then it says of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth in verse 18. So, so here back up in verses like 14, uh, you're the father and you and sin get together and you have baby sin and then that leads to grandbaby death and it doesn't work out for you because you're in the ground. Now God's the daddy. Now God's the daddy. And what does our father do? He fills the whole world with light. And then it says he sends this word of truth to us. The word of truth is clearly his son. We know that because in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, as you hold to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We know that the word of truth is Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the word of truth. He sent his son as a father. He sent his son into this life. That son had life to give you. So loosely paralleling here in this text is he sends his son, his son gives you life. So you're kind of like an adopted grandson in this text. You've been given life through his son. That's a whole lot better than the sin plan. God the Father giving his son who gives you new life. If that's true, why would we trust our sin? Why would we accuse him? of bringing wickedness when he brings light and life into the world. It says of his own will, he brought us forth. He gave us life, how? By the word of truth, his son, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The phrase first fruits there now, quickly as he's talking about this, the whole star, sun, light, and life, then he glances to the side and he kind of uses this field imagery where we're the first fruits coming up from the soil. But he says first fruits of his creatures, which that that just means created things. So so here the stars are looking down. He made them. The sun is the light of the world. Through the sun, we get life and we get truth. We're kind of the first fruits, the first crop coming up from the soil, which means he's just getting started. And we're the first of his new creation. It's as if the stars themselves are looking down jealous because their light is running out and we have a light that will never fade. What? an artistic, poetic way to say God is good. He's the one when your soul is dark and empty like space who brought light. He's the one when the ground was cursed like Eden. He brought the growth. He's the one when you were dead in your sins who brought life again. He's the one when you were alienated from him who brought you into his family. And he's the problem Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Compared to the stars, he's brilliant in light. Compared to dark, sleazy, slutty sin that's leading you to your own death and you don't see it, he's a faithful father who wants you to have life forever. Don't be deceived. Stop believing the lie that God is the problem. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we'll put that up on the screen, says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, in the beginning, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is light, and if you have Christ in your life, you are what the Bible calls his offspring. You are the first fruits of his creatures. You are filled with the divine, glorious light that comes from Jesus Christ. And that light that God shines in your soul is pure, it's eternal. He's not pouring darkness into your life. This God can never, ever scheme or intend bad for you. He can never endorse sin. But it's the first fruits. 
That means that it takes time. God is doing something that's the beginning. We want it over now. But it's just the first thing he's doing. The Bible calls us here to remember that he gave us new life. We've been made new and Jesus is now with us. And that's just the first thing he did. Wow. Imagine what's coming in this life and in the next. We are supposed to walk out of this passage with such an amazing confidence in the purity and the love of God that we will never believe the lie that he's the problem. And we will always believe the truth that his way is best. And with that confidence that he is our father, he's given us life, then we can walk through anything together with him. That's our hope. That's our confidence through whatever. Do you have this hope? Hey, ask yourself this. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there a time in your life when you understood all of the suffering that you have caused God through your sin? Is there a moment that you could point to where you understood that you need a Savior? You need a Savior to save you. That God wasn't in your life. Have you asked Jesus to save you from your sins? If so, then God has established his glorious rule in your heart. He's claiming more and more ground by the day. He's changing your attitudes and choices every moment. and He's using suffering to do it. Have you lost your confidence in the amazing God who saved you? He commands the biggest stars to stay in their place. Stars big enough to consume our entire solar system. And they do what he says. He can get you through this. Your problem is very small to him. He's using it, though, to reveal your love, to grow your faith. Every day he brings light from the darkness. Every day he grows up new first fruits from the soil. He saves souls. Every day he does that. He's only good. He's always good. He's perfectly good. Do you trust him? If you hold onto God's good character... If you remain steadfast under trial, the crown waits. In this life and in the next, you will receive one blessing after another. He will pour out so much good. He will bring up a crop, a harvest through your pain. You won't believe what he has planned for you. The Bible says, how great is the goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. Wow. It's just a matter of time. I want to challenge you right now to respond to this message by bringing all of your pain and suffering into the presence of God through prayer. Let's all bow our hearts, let's all close our eyes, and let's all go to the Lord together right now. Father, it's the question we ask time and again, why? Why, O oh Lord, and how long? When our knees are weak, when our eyes are weary, when we're not sleeping well at night and we're getting into fights, we wonder why. When we dread the next doctor's visit, can't stand being in the hospital, don't want to look at the bank accounts, we wonder why. And Father, your people often are bearing up under a great weight, the pain of the past which haunts us, the words that have been spoken that we can't take back. Oh Lord, right now we bring our hardship and our suffering into your presence. We know that you are cleaning up the great spill of sin that happened. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Father, we just right now agree with what your word says. 
You are the Father of lights. There is no darkness at all in you. You mean us no harm. You've never sinned, ever. All of your plans are for your glory. Every day you are working to eliminate the mess that sin made. We trust this even when we don't see it. Grow our faith. And I think of those who are here today who have always wondered where they stand with you. They've been angry with you. They've been hurt by you. But it's because you have never been in their life. You want them to know you. Perhaps today's the day. Show them, Lord, in their own hearts that you sent Jesus, the love of God, down into this world from heaven to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, and then to rise again with victory over the grave. Show them that Jesus died in their place on the cross to take away their sins. What love! And they may want to ask in their own heart, saying, forgive me, Father, for my sins. Forgive me for the mess I've made. Heal my heart of wickedness. Come into my life that I might know your love now and forever. Shine light in the darkness of my soul. Be present as a father in the loneliness that I experience. Father, for those who are praying that right now, give them the assurance that only you can. You will never leave them. You will never forsake them because Christ is their Lord. Oh, Father, may our hearts find rest in your presence. Give us endurance that we might learn and grow. It's all for your glory because we love you. 